Um, in the morning, we're having a, a, a series of sermons on the book of Kings. And uh, today, the, uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 20. So Josh is going to open the word to us a little bit later. But uh, he's dealing with the whole of chapter 20. So it's quite a long chapter. So we split it in two. So Terence is going to come up later and read the second half and do our corporate prayer. But the first half I'm going to, to read to you now. So in the book of Kings, so the Old Testament, sort of a quarter way through the Bible, perhaps a bit more, and it's the book of Kings. says 1 Kings chapter 20. And in my Bible it's headed Ahab's war with Syria. Just so that you know the context of this, Ahab was a king of the northern kingdom after the divided kingdom of Israel. So Israel were in the north, Judah to the south. Ahab, and he was not a good king, was, was the ruler of, of the north. Um, and he was oppressed by many of the neighbors. And this, is, this particular passage is dealing with that oppression. He's about to be attacked by the Syrian king, which is just to the north. So hear the word of the Lord. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him and horses and chariots, and he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to, to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and gold are mine. Your best wives and children are also mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they will search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives, my children, and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he sent, said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent, uh, ben sent to him and said, The gods do t- so to me and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for the handfuls for all people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast as he who takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking with the kings in, in the booths, he said to his men, take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, have you seen the great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hands this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, by whom? He said, Thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, Who shall begin the battle? He answered, You. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and there were 232. And after them he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. 
And they went out at noon, while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booze, he and the thirty-two kings who helped him. The servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him. Men are coming out from, from Samaria. He said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they've come out for war, take them alive. So, so these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them, and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled, and, the, and, the, and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with a horseman. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horse, horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophets came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself, and consider all what you have done, for in the spring the king of Syria will come against you. And the reading um, is a continuation from what you heard earlier. So again, we turn to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 20, and I'll be reading from verses um, 22 all the way to the end of the chapter. 43. So 1 Kings chapter 20, reading from verses 22 to 43. Okay, 1 Kings 20, verse 22. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself, and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills so that they were stronger than we. But let us fight them in this plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings, each from his post, and put commanders in their places. And muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mastered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mastered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. And the man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, a hundred thousand foot soldiers in one day, and the rest fled into the city of Aphek. And the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. And his servants said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waist and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their waist and put ropes on their heads, and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign 
And they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. And he said, Go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused them to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at Say to his fellow at the command of the Lord, Strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he has departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, Strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And the king passed. He cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier, a soldier turned and brought the man to me and said, Guard this man. If, any, if by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver." And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let go of your hand, the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. And um, yes, as was mentioned earlier, sadly, uh, it will be the last time for a little while. Uh, And yeah, it will be sad not to be here for about six months, but... um, also, at the same time, glad I get to go and, and help out at Vic Park and, and be able to serve there. And uh, that's a good thing to do, not just because we're Presbyterian and they're a fellow Presbyterian church in our denomination, but also uh, it's just great to be able to support the, the gospel work that's happening uh, around our city. Um, so, yes, uh, so thank you for the return ticket, Bruce. I'll, I'll keep that in my pocket and I'll look forward to being back with everyone here in about six months' time. Well, today uh, is not just uh, my last day uh, at church for a while. It's also uh, for my wife, uh, Carolyn, and I, our seventh wedding anniversary uh, today. So, yeah, thank you very much. Um, (laughs) uh, Praise God, it's been uh, seven great years. Now, I mention that because uh, one of the things I've gotten to know uh, about my wife over those years is that uh, not just on wedding anniversaries, but also on basically any special occasion, she loves to get a card. She loves a card with a love note in it from me. Now, when I asked uh, Carolyn about this, why she appreciates uh, these sorts of things, she said, well, look, it's, it's a way to know that the other person who's writing you the card thinks that you are special In short, uh, when you receive a card, you're getting to know that person better. Uh, You get to know what they think of you. 
Uh, if not from the, the words, the content of the letter itself, then simply from the act, the gesture of giving a card. Uh, each express that this other person considers you to be a source of affection for them, uh, to be someone of high value, uh, to be someone who is the object of their love. Now, if, if that's one way to get to know another person, well, then this morning I want to ask, how do we get to know God? Now, the classic answer to this question, uh, we've talked about this lots here, the classic answer to this question, of course, is we get to know him through his word. That's where he's revealed himself in the pages of scripture. And yet, well, if we look at the, the state of things here in Australia today, it seems that many people are confused about who God is and what he's like. So you'll know uh, uh, that a year ago we did the something called the National Church Life Survey. Well, that organisation also puts out other surveys. They do another one called the Australian Community Survey. And in this survey, they engage the wider public, not just those in churches, but the wider uh, public in Australia on a host of a variety of issues. And so they, they ran one back in uh, 2019, uh, and here's what it said. In response to a question about God, well, only just under 30% of people who responded said that there is a personal God, just under 30% of Australians. Now, when asked about Jesus, uh, 22% of people said that he was a mythical figure and 20% said they didn't know what to think about Jesus. Now, for those who did think that he was a real figure, a real figure in history, only 26% thought that he was God in human form. Now, I don't know about you, that tells me that a lot of people, at least here in Australia, are confused about God. Now, sure, that's no doubt because uh, biblical literacy has, has taken a, a deep downward spiral over the last 50 to 70 years. But I want to uh, do a thought experiment with you this morning. And let's, let's say, for argument's sake, that you don't have easy access to the Bible. Now, you could do a, a Google search to find out about God. But if you do that, you could get a whole host, a whole variety of answers, anything from he doesn't exist, all the way through to he's mean, capricious, evil. You can get an answer anywhere in there. So here's the question. Well, what would I have to grasp? Well, what would I have to see? What would I need to see? What do I need to understand in order to really know who God is? Or to put it another way, if I was to write a card to him, what would I put in it to show that I know him, to show that I really know him? Well, this morning as we look at this uh, passage in 1 Kings chapter 20, in what's our second last sermon in this series, well, we're going to get a good clue as to what the answer might be. Now, the story shifts from where we last left things with the prophet Elijah to instead focus on the current Israelite king, a man named Ahab. And if you've been with us these last few weeks as we've been going through this part of 1 Kings, well, you know that this guy Ahab, he's a, a bit of a piece of work. So it's a, a surprise. It's, it's uh, not a surprise, actually, that when we start the chapter, 
we find Ahab to be in between a rock and a hard place. Now, the king of Israel, he's aggressively approached from the north by his rival, this king named Ben-Hadad, the king of the Syrians, or otherwise known as the Aramaeans. Now, this is a guy who's got 32 other kings with him as part of his army. No, 32 uh, vassal state leaders who are all there to make a huge combined army bearing down on the, uh, the kingdom of Israel. And clearly that this power has gone to this guy's head. Because if there's one thing we know about this king, it's that he is a bully. So he sends a messenger to talk to Ahab at the end of verse 2, and he says this, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and your children are also mine. I wonder if he means Jezebel in that, that pick. I wonder... Now, that's a a personal attack on the king. He's saying, everything you have belongs to me. It's meant to show Ben-Hadad's power over Ahab. And Ahab's response to this demand, this, this threat, is, well, frankly, it's pretty weak. He basically says, okay, in verse four, as you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. Now, there's not a backbone in sight. But this bully king isn't finished. And like any bully, well, simply humiliating someone's not enough. He's going to keep pressing until he breaks, which he does. He continues to press, continues to make threats until Ahab does a tiny little pushback. And then Ben-Hadad responds in verse 10, with this incredible boast. He says, The gods do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. In other words, he's saying, when I'm through with you, there won't be enough dust left for my men to even grab a handful. Now Ahab finds a measure of confidence and and chirps back at him in the next verse, verse 11, by saying basically, Don't count your chickens until they've hatched. And, well, that's enough for Ben-Hadad, the bully king, to begin drawing battle lines. Now, how is it, though, that Ahab is between a rock and a hard place? Well, the hard place is clearly this evil bully king who seems intent on destroying him and Israel. Now, the rock, however, is altogether different. And we, have, we pick that up as we uh, grasp the history that we know of Ahab up to this point in the story. And the, and the history is that Ahab too is an evil king. In fact, when we're first introduced to him in 1 Kings chapter 16, we're told, quote, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, I've got to say, that's, that's a pretty impressive feat, to be the most evil king in a long line of evil Israelite kings. But he's well known for this. He set up Baal worship. He's reluctant to listen to God when God speaks. Indeed, if you caught this, in the opening 12 verses of our chapter, he doesn't seem to care at all what God thinks of the situation. At no point does he pray to God asking him for help as this bully king is bearing down on him. 
Even when he's been threatened with extinction. Even when he'd just seen moments before this, back in chapter 18, the battle between Baal and God on the top of Mount Carmel, where God used supernatural means to defeat Baal. He's seen all of that, and still he seems to want nothing to do with God. Hence, he's in between a, a rock and a hard place. On the one side, he's at war with a bully king intent on his destruction. On the other, he's at war with a righteous God provoked to burning anger because of his idolatry. But it's not looking good for Ahab or Israel. But then, then we get to verse 13. And what do we see? The appearance of a prophet. Now that means that that's the appearance of someone speaking God's word. It means God has something to say about this, about what's happening. And what's God going to do when this prophet arrives? Is he coming to rebuke Ahab for his idolatry? Is he coming to, to smite him with fire for not listening to God? Well, let's read from halfway through verse 13. Here's what God says. Thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude, this huge army? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day and you shall know that I am the Lord. So even after all that Ahab has done to ignore God, to provoke him, Uh, Here is God coming to Ahab with a word of grace. Here is God coming to Ahab with a promise of a complete conquest rather than a devastating destruction that he deserves. Now Ahab asks how this is going to be done and God replies. Just to show Ahab who he really is, God replies telling him, to send out the junior soldiers first, the the, the servants of the governors of the districts. Those are going to be the, the, the rookie soldiers. Not exactly the best battle plan on the surface. But out they go, and as they do, it just so happens that Ben Hadad, well, he's so confident that the scales are massively tipped in his favor. He's so confident of the coming victory Well, he's already, it seems, he's already started celebratory beers with his officers. And as a result, well, the Israelites catch him and his army unprepared and they gain a clear victory with Ben-Hadad managing to escape on horseback. And just where you think, well, that's great, fantastic, victory instead of defeat. Well, just when you're thinking that, the whole process repeats itself. We go for round two, almost the same thing happening again. This time the Syrians, uh, the next year, they try to get Ben-Hadad to be sneaky. They say in verse 23 that the God of the Israelites, he's only the God of the hills. He's not the God of the plains. So if we get our army and we go fight them on the plains, then we'll get them. And they bring everyone, bring the army back again. And when the battle is about to be joined, we're told just how one-sided this battle is. Verse 27, where Israel's fighting force is described as two little flocks of goats, while the Syrian force fills the country, we're told. But again, just as hope seems lost, what do we see? But 
God reinserting himself into the story, with this time with another prophet, unannounced, unexpected. A man of God appears and he says to Ahab in verse 28, thus says the Lord. Because the Syrians have said the Lord is the God of the hills, but he's not the God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. It's a further promise of victory, a further promise of grace from a God who's only experienced provocation from this evil king. Well, the battle takes place and it takes place quickly. We're only given about one line of detail about it. But if you've got the eyes to see, well, you might have noticed that the comparisons with the battle of Jericho are actually pretty clear. There's a a seven-day wait until they start the battle. Then there's a clear military victory for Israel. And plus, even a wall falls down at the end. Now, again, Ben-Hadad, he seems to get away, but he's only able to escape to an inner chamber of the city. He's just around the corner. He's trapped. That means the battle is over. Ahab has secured a lasting victory over his enemy, the enemy who is threatening to destroy him. But it's not thanks to him. It's all thanks to God. And as we continue in the story from there, what we see, all that follows here is the response. How is Ahab going to respond to these victories that God has graciously gifted to him? Well, Ben-Hadad's servants, they come to Ahab to to beg for his life. They've gone from saying, thus says Ben-Hadad, to instead saying, please let us live. And when they come to Ahab, well, he turns around and says, oh, he's still alive? He's my brother. Now, that's quite an astounding thing to say, given this guy was just trying to destroy not only you and your family, but your whole nation. But Ahab goes further again. He doesn't just bring him out of hiding. He welcomes him up to his chariot. That's a a huge sign of honour. And then he accepts the very first deal that Ben-Hadad makes for him. Now, it's, it's a deal that was no doubt advantageous to Ahab. He gets more cities. He gets more power plus some nice trading options with a a market established in in Damascus. And then he he just lets him go. Now, we might on the surface think, oh, he's being a really nice guy. He's being gracious to this guy. But the story's not finished. In fact, the last line there, verse 34, I think is the most telling. We're told that Ahab made a covenant with this bully king and let him go. It says, in other words, Ahab had his own arrangements to make. He had his own deals to make. He was looking out for his own advantages. He wasn't interested in any arrangement he might have had with God, any covenant he might have had with God. He was making his way forward in life without respect to God's word to him. And so we see God respond in the last section of the story, verses 35 to 43. 
First, with a, a somewhat bizarre episode between yet another prophet and his fellow man. Now, this prophet says to the fellow man in verse 35, he says, strike me. Quite perhaps an unusual thing to say. The man refuses. That seems pretty reasonable when someone asks you to injure them. Well, the prophet then goes, because you didn't listen, a lion's going to come and kill you, which is exactly what happens. Immediately, the guy leaves, the lion strikes him down. Now, well, what's the point of this story? Why are we told this? Well, the, the key purpose is to show how important it is to listen to God's word. Now, you might have picked up that the prophet said in verse 36, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, you will meet your end. That's, the, that's what happens when you don't listen to God. That's what we're being told. Now, Ahab is clearly guilty of this. Uh, Ahab's clearly guilty of the same thing. So when this prophet, who's now injured because another guy actually obeyed God's word, when he goes to Ahab, he, he lulls him into a false sense of security with some story about a, a man who's forced to face the consequences of an arrangement that he didn't keep. And then the prophet points the finger at Ahab and he says, it's you who haven't kept the arrangements that you made. Because you let the bully king go, someone God had devoted to destruction, just like what happened in Jericho, he says, your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. Because you are more interested in your own arrangements than your arrangement with God. The punishment meant for the bully king, that's going to fall on you instead. Now that's the risk that we take if we don't listen to God. If we spurn his covenant. It's not safe to ignore God. Now sadly, even now at this point, Ahab still doesn't do anything with this. Rather than turning in repentance, the final verses of this chapter, what happens? We see him return home sulking. It seems that there are no lessons to be learned for this king of Israel. But there are lessons for us as readers today in the 21st century. And the big lesson, the big thing to note in this chapter is just how surprising the grace of God really is. Now, in every respect, Ahab's behaviour in this passage is inexcusable. As the the king of a, a kingdom which was given to him by God, he shows no desire whatsoever to know, understand, or even respond to God. He never reaches out to God, even after God reaches out to him multiple times. When God first promises him victory, sure, then he, he, he talks to God when things suddenly look good for him. But that's it. Otherwise, it's as if God isn't even there. He's living his life without him. And we can't count this just as Ahab kind of having a bad day either. It's been the steadfast pattern of his life. Weak leadership is characterized by a stubborn refusal to listen or obey to God. And so in in the midst of all of that, it's simply incredible that God provides not one, 
but two, convincing victories over his mortal enemies. And can I say, isn't that just what God does for people like you and me as well? We too have an abysmal track record when we stand before God, when it comes to listening and obeying him. We too tend to live as if God doesn't exist. We tend to go out making our own arrangements, seeking our own advantage in life without respect to God. We might hear from God and then still, as we look at, uh, either as we look at the world around us, we might hear him speak to us through the world that he's made, or we might hear his word read, and, and even then can still barely acknowledge him, let alone listen and take it on board and respond. And yet, God offers us his grace through Jesus. That's, this is a truth laid out for us uh, in places in the New Testament, like Romans chapter 5, verse 8. This is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. Romans 5, verse 8, it says this, But God showed his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, he didn't just save us. He didn't save us when we were at our best, when we were at our most obedient, when we were listening most closely to him. No, God saves us at our worst. Can you imagine a jewellery shop owner giving someone free jewellery right after that person has just robbed him? Or a parent handing a teenage child the keys after that child has smashed the other car. Can you get a, then I think if you can grasp that, you can get a sense of the surprising grace that God shows to sinners like me and you. Now in some sense, maybe on paper, this seems like madness that, that God would offer this to us. If an employee was caught stealing from a company and the boss finds out, and the boss doesn't fire him, but gives him a promotion, you'd think the boss had gone wild. See, what we should get is the same thing that employees should get, a swift kick to the side of the road. And that's what Ahab gets by the end of this chapter. Now God says to him effectively, you've brought judgment on yourself. That bully king's life was mine. And you let him go, thus your life is now mine. Now that's the exact same position that every one of us has been in, owing our lives to God. Not just because he made us and because he's our true king, but because we've denied him over and over and over again. We've made our own arrangements, our own covenants. We've failed to listen to what God has said and what God has done. But even though our lives should be forfeit, like Ahab's life, well, that's not what happens. Why? Because Christ died for us. Because Christ's life was made forfeit so that yours and mine didn't have to be if we receive him by faith. You might have even, there was a clue. You might have even spotted the clue that tells us this. It's given by the final prophet as he tells his story to the king. He says this towards the end of verse 39. Your life shall be for his life or else you shall pay a talent of silver. Now see, because we haven't listened to and obeyed the true king of the universe, 
Well, our lives are forfeit, that means. Or we've got to pay to make things right. And if it's up to to me or you to do that, either way, we're doomed. All all we will face is God's judgment. The only way we can get out of this is if someone else, the right person, pays my place instead. Praise God for Jesus. There's no other way that we can be right with God, that our life can be saved. There's no other way that your life or mine can be saved apart from the payment of the blood of the Lord Jesus. And he gives it to us for free when we're still his enemies to be received by faith. That's the surprising grace of our God. So, if you want to know who God is, if you want to truly know him, that means the way to do so is by looking at his mighty acts. Now, that's what God instructed Ahab to do. He said, I will give this overwhelming enemy into your hands and then you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, it's the same today. I can know who God is by his mighty act, his act of salvation through the Lord Jesus. Now, do you know him in this way? Is that how you know God? Have you seen what he has done? It's right here laid out in the pages of Scripture, the clear message of the gospel of God's surprising grace to us. Grace that he offers to people like you and me, people who don't deserve it. So, as we close, can I say, don't be like Ahab. Don't hear God's word, see God's mighty act of salvation, and then do nothing with it. And don't receive his word just once, like Ahab did in that first battle, only to then... Go and make your own arrangements in life. Go live your life without respect to him. That's not how it works either. No, the the message we're seeing here is that we are to listen and respond and keep responding to God. To the God who's, who's written a card telling us all about him in his word. To the God who provides salvation through the work of Christ, to the great God of surprising grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, may we never uh, take for granted the surprising grace that you show us in Jesus. Uh, We recognise just how unworthy we are of your favour, just how our lives so reflect uh, the life of Ahab, an evil king who provokes you to anger. Father, would you forgive us for those things that we do to anger you, to, uh, to spurn you, to ignore you? Would you forgive us for those things? Would you help us, if we're not currently doing so, to turn from those things and to place our trust in Jesus? Would you help us to see the, the remarkable nature of your grace and to grasp hold of it with both hands? And for those of us who are already doing that, would you help us to continue responding to that grace, not by sulking when things don't go our way, 
but by remembering all that God, that you have done for us, remembering your great love for us that you've written down for us. And may our lives reflect that in the things we do from day to day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.